Good evening. Um, welcome to the third in a series of three lectures by Alan Wolf. And I'm just going to very briefly introduce our introducer tonight. She is uh, Marie Griffith. She's been an, in the uh, Department of Religion, Associate Professor in Religion Department for the last year, but she just reminded me that she was actually here at Princeton for a couple of years earlier when uh, she was the director of the Center for the Study of Religion. And so without further ado, Marie. Thank you, Lee. Like my predecessors, I'm delighted to have the chance to introduce Alan Wolf, who is the director of the Boise Center for Religion and Public Life and professor of political science at Boston College. A native Philadelphian, he received his undergraduate degree from Temple University and did graduate work at Vanderbilt before receiving the PhD in political science from the University of Pennsylvania. If you attended one or both of the previous lectures in this series, you have heard about Professor Wolf's provocative and influential publications, which range back at least to 1970. Just to note some of these rich investigations once again, he is the author of numerous books that include The Limits of Legitimacy, Political Contradictions of Contemporary Capitalism, Whose Keeper, Social Science and Moral Obligation, One Nation After All, What Middle-Class Americans Really Think About God, Country, Family, Racism, Welfare, Immigration, Homosexuality, Work, The Right, The Left, and Each Other, and Moral Freedom, The Search for Virtue in a World of Choice, and finally, the transformation of American religion, how we actually practice our faith. His list of other publications is truly extraordinary. Now, others before me have previously remarked at length upon Professor Wolf's lasting contributions to political science in particular and to sociology. So I want to say a word about uh, the influence of those of us who work in the humanities and specifically in the study of religion. In the transformation of American religion and his many articles and essays on religion in the United States, Professor Wolf has managed both to synthesize the findings of a tremendous amount of new scholarship in the field and, and more importantly, to raise it to a significantly higher level by sifting it through his own insights, his own continued research, and making larger sense of this body of work as no one has done before. He didn't ask me to plug his book, by the way, I promise. But nonetheless, I thought it would be instructive to read just a short passage from the conclusion that will whet your appetite for more. Um, and I, I do this particularly in light of all the post-election punditry on religion, much of it highly alarmist in tone. Um, Alan is not alarmist at all, and he writes... Religion, like the stock market, has its ups and downs, and there may occur a time when talk of jihad dies down, peace is achieved in the Middle East, and the Catholic Church becomes more democratic. But it is not the headline-grabbing events that will determine the future of American religion. 
American religion had already become more personalized and individualistic, less doctrinal and devotional, more practical and purposeful, and increasingly at home with the culture surrounding it long before September 11, suicide bombings, and the trials and tribulations of Bernard Carnal Law. The events of religion's bad year may have sped them along, but whatever changes in religious practice they encourage would most likely have taken place in some form or other without them. We can never predict what future decades will bring to the practice of American religion, but we can control the effects of those developments by narrowing the gap between the high expectations we often have for religion and the realities of ordinary people leading mundane lives. The more we refrain from treating religion as if it has some status that makes it different from everything else in the world, holier and more moral if you like it, more sectarian and divisive if you do not, the greater are our chances of avoiding religion's ugly legacies while being able to appreciate its benefits for the individuals who practice it and for the democratic society they inhabit. American religion has been so transformed that we have reached the end of religion as we have known it. This does not mean religion no longer has meaning. It means we will have to know it in new ways. Such observations have brought Professor Wolf's notice to growing audiences of humanists and social scientists together in the study of religion as well as a still-growing public audience, as these lectures only begin to indicate. Many of us, myself included, know him also to be a very generous mentor to younger generations of scholars whom he has encouraged in numerous ways. All of us have stretched intellectually because of his work, and we look to him as representing a public intellectual in the very best sense. Tonight, in his third and final lecture here, he will speak on the liberal retreat from ambition. Please join me in welcoming Alan Wolf. Do I really have to follow that? I mean, my goodness. You set the bar pretty high tonight, Marie. Thank you so much. It's really a... Uh, it warms my heart to hear what you said, and uh, I'm, I'm enormously grateful. And uh, um, what she didn't say explicitly, uh, um, I'll say explicitly, which is I couldn't have written the transformation of, of American religion without Marie's work and the work of uh, a whole generation of people who are just doing tremendously exciting work. And really all I didn't come along with to try to tell the larger story uh, that's uh, embedded in there. I'm, I'm just grateful to you for a whole lot of reasons. Um, well, uh, this is the third of three lectures. Uh, I'm, I'm, I won't ask how many have uh, been willing to sit through all of them. I'll, I'll just say briefly that <laughs> um, in the first, I sort of laid out uh, a very, very schematic overview of some of the ways in which American leaders and thinkers and philosophers have talked about American purpose. And I contrasted what I call division of America uh, a, a vision of a good America with a vision of a great America. And I tried to define what I believed were the key elements of uh, what, con what would constitute a great America, such as a commitment to certain fundamental ideals, such as liberty and equality, 
the recognition of the necessity for some conception of national, national citizenship and national political authority to transform those ideals into reality, and uh, some willingness to consider the obligations Americans might have if they believe in those ideals, uh, to share them with the rest of the world. In the second lecture, I made an argument that um, while there are many people these days who call themselves conservative, who I believe to one degree or another share in that vision of American greatness, and I mentioned a few of them by name, uh, a number of them happen to belong to the exact same family, mother, daughter, father, uh, the Himmelfarb-Pristal uh, family, who uh, I believe uh, are people with whom I disagree, but are nonetheless committed to an objective similar to mine, which is to think about the whole nature of American ambition. But uh, I mention them only in contrast to point out a, 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 an astonishingly large number of trends in American conservative thought that uh, are uh, essentially repelled by the idea of American greatness, uh, that seek rather something else, uh, whether it's a localism or states' rights or a free market. I talked about the Federalist Society, which are really anti-Federalists. Uh, I talked about um, the isolationist tradition in the conservative movement, which I think is in no way dead, but is much more likely to uh, reassert itself, not only because of the failure in Iraq, but because Philip Roth evoked it so fantastically well in his new novel. Uh, I talked about uh, uh, Robert Bork and uh, his idea of binding uh, successor generations to the ideals of the founders through original intent, which doesn't strike me as a way of meeting the challenges uh, of the modern world. But I paid a particularly a large amount of attention to uh, the uh, importance of America's greatest conservative thinker, without question, John C. Calhoun, and his legacy, including his legacy among a number of contemporary uh, writers, uh, the late uh, political philosopher Wilmore Kendall, and a number of people who emerged from the South, such as Richard Weaver, one of the founders of modern conservatism. I even talked about a very, very obscure person named M.E. Bradford, who only became famous because Ronald Reagan tried to uh, nominate him to head the National Endowment for the Humanities. And it was such a, when it was discovered that Bradford had denounced uh, Abraham Lincoln as a dictator, uh, this didn't go down too well. And uh, uh, a number of people opposed his appointment, including William Bennett and other conservatives, and he never got the job. Uh, and uh, for those of you who came last night, you may have heard in my remarks a kind of fascination with Calhoun's legacy. Uh, on the right. Calhoun was a brilliant, but in many ways a very, very perverse thinker. Uh, and uh, it astonishes me that someone who defended slavery so passionately and who uh, um, uh, uh, continued to insist on the uh, defense of the South and its peculiar way of life as the model for what a good society would constitute, that such a person could have so much relevance uh, for today. So it may not surprise you completely to know that when I turn tonight to talk about liberals and the certain tendencies within liberal thinking or progressive thinking or left-wing thinking, um, all of those terms apply, that the first person I would discuss is someone who inherited the ideas of John C. Calhoun. And oddly enough, it turns out to be a person remarkably like Emmy Bradford. That is, it was a person appointed to a prominent position by the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, 
only to lead people to read her law review articles uh, and uh, then to find in them all kinds of statements that were difficult to justify. And I'm sure while you don't remember many of you, Emmy Bradford, you do remember Lanny Guineer. And uh, Lanny Guineer, um, um, I think, is a very interesting figure, and it's worth taking her ideas very seriously. During the controversy that surrounded her nomination, um, she was called a quota queen, uh, which I believe was a, a, an outrageously unfair attack on her. Um, she was, in fact, a critic of quotas in uh, her writings. Her ideas were much more complicated than that. And I think she really did get a, a kind of a bad press. On the other hand, there's absolutely no doubt, in my view, that she is indeed indebted to John C. Calhoun and that uh, uh, Calhoun, well known to us as a critic of democracy, um, that in many ways there's a criticism in Guineer uh, as well about democracy and in particular about the kinds of uh, modern democracies that uh, are required in the modern world. Um, Calhoun makes a number of appearances in Lanny Guineer's uh, law review articles. Uh, she actually probably, I don't know whether she did this or not, maybe it was her editor who's actually a good friend of mine, but when the book based on the articles came out, all the references to John C. Calhoun uh, were uh, suddenly not there. Uh, uh, but Calhoun was important to Guineer because for Guineer, her book, when she collected her, her writings and put them out, she called her book The Tyranny of the Majority. Um, and it was this notion of majority tyranny that really uh, bothered her. As she wrote in her book, she said, there is nothing inherent in democracy that requires majority rule, uh, which is probably true, at least expressed at, la at, at that level. But just as the fear of majority pervades Calhoun's writings, the fear of the majority uh, persuades uh, Guineer's writings uh, 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 just as much. Um, my concern with it is that uh, uh, Calhoun was an enemy of the idea of a nation state accumulating sufficient authority uh, to make it possible for the objectives of liberty and equality to be met. And I think that danger is a serious danger in Lanny Guineer's writings as well. Um, and the only way, uh, the best way, it's not probably the only way, but I think the best way that I can make this point, for some reason I'm more thirsty tonight than I was the last time, it's the Indian food. I think the best way that I can make this point is to briefly compare Guineer's writings with the writings of another liberal uh, who also writes on exactly the same subject, uh, of the subject of majority rule, and in fact takes off in his work from the same uh, tradition that Guineer takes uh, off from, and that is uh, what could be called our, our Madisonian political system, a political system of checks and balances. Uh, James McGregor Burns, The Deadlock of Democracy, which was first published in 1963, deals with all the same issues that Guineer's The Tyranny of the Majority uh, deals with much later. Uh, but the books come to totally diametrically opposite conclusions. Uh, for uh, James McGregor Burns, uh, the political system prevents, our political system is a problem because it prevents the majority's voice from being heard. In uh, McGregor Burns's analysis, you have so much fracturing between uh, the different branches of government, and in particular, you have what he calls a, a kind of four-party system of presidential Democrats and congressional Democrats and presidential Republicans and congressional Republicans, that the whole system is deadlocked. And therefore, uh, Congress and the presidency are all of our institutions, according to James McGregor Burns, could not summon the will 
to carry out any actions because the majority was never really allowed to speak. Uh, Burns's notion was that there was a kind of hidden liberal or democratic majority in the country, and therefore we required a kind of feudal-like political system to prevent the majority's voice from being heard. In Guineer's analysis, the majority view will be a racist view or will be a view that will never give sufficient recognition to African-Americans and their needs. Um, and in Guineer's vision, we already have too much concentrated political power. Guineer uh, says uh, in her book that uh, uh, we shouldn't have so much power in the presidency, that we should have more power in the Congress and in state legislatures and so on. So in, in, for Burns, uh, the majority cannot express itself because the institutions of government prevent it from doing so. For uh, Guineer, the majority should not be allowed to express itself, and we need a fractured Madisonian system in order to prevent the rights of minorities from being uh, uh, overwhelmed by, by majorities. It, it's, it's really quite a striking contrast, I think. Um, Burns wants to enlarge the suffrage, uh, but Guineer actually is not in favor of enlarging the suffrage per se. She's in favor of mechanisms that would give greater voice to minority voters as opposed to enlarging the suffrage. Um, Guineer is not interested in trying to build a new majority. Um, in fact, she, rec uh, she rejects coalitions as a way of effectively doing politics. And coalition building to create a majority, she thinks, is a bad idea. And instead, she endorses, and this is what leads her critics to be fro so frustrated by her, because she never really says how this would work. But she wants some kind of system that would allow minority voices to be represented at all times and at all places. Um, Burns wanted centralized political authority. Guineer wants uh, 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 decentralized political authority, um, uh, and, uh, and, and on and on uh, the, uh, uh, the, the contrasts go. Now, I, in, if, in my perspective uh, on this, I see Burns's work and the work of other writers that were Burns's contemporaries, like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., for example, or John Kenneth Galbraith in that era. Um, maybe even Maxwell Taylor, who was writing sort of similar kind of books about foreign policy in that era, as kind of the last gasp of an ambitious sense of national purpose coming from the left. Uh, uh, the last gasp of a sense that uh, there really would be a majority uh, in this country for good and progressive goals, if only it were allowed to express itself. But with Guineer, I see a whole different mood, a whole different sense uh, that we really can't trust American majorities at all. And in a sense, what the job of the left is with Guineer is not to so much advance a progressive cause, but to defend the pro progressive gains that have already been made. From Guineer's, Burns's, Burns and Schlesinger are looking to the future in the hopes that with each succeeding presidential election, um, the liberals will do better and better. For Guineer, this is a sense probably right, as it turns out, uh, that the future is not going to be very good, and so we have to be very defensive and protective uh, of, of what we already have. Um, and the, this whole defensive nature of her work is, is really quite striking in contrast to the optimism of earlier generations of uh, liberals. Now, it, you know, how representative is Lanny Guineer? Is Lanny Guineer an interesting 
figure, but really very idiosyncratic. She is indeed quite idiosyncratic, and one might conclude that her ideas stand for nothing much but the um, one law professor trying to wrestle through some intellectual problems and coming to some unusual conclusions about them. Uh, but that's not how I see it. I see her uh, uh, um, writings as much more emblematic of a whole way of thinking about power and national purpose that influences not only her and not only the issues which, with, with, with which she was concerned, which were primarily issues of race, but it has uh, influenced an entire generation of liberal thinkers. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. So just as last night, I went through some examples of conservative thinking. Um, I'll go through some examples of similar kinds of uh, thinking from the left. Um, I pointed out, for example, last night, uh, I talked a great deal about this organization called the Federalist Society, which if you haven't heard about it, you're going to be hearing about it a lot because they're going to be the people who, in a sense, vet or pass judgment on the uh, uh, judicial nominees that President Bush will be proposing. Um, and uh, having had some contact with the Federalist Society will probably be a prima facie condition for getting a judicial appointment in the Bush administration. And I, I, I noted in passing that while they call themselves Federalist, uh, the Federalist Society, uh, without being too confusing, uh, has really inherited the mantle of what used to be called the Anti-Federalists. Uh, when the Constitution was argued and debated and then implemented in its early years, Federalists were the people who wanted to strengthen national authority, such as John Marshall. Anti-Federalists uh, were the people who wanted to insist on states' rights and to weaken the national government. So in that context, if that's the way we use the terms, then the contemporary Federalist Society is really anti-Federalist. It wants to weaken national authority. So uh, the next uh, um, uh, step in the argument is just that it, just as there is a kind of lingering interest in Calhoun on the American left, there is a, actually a much more significant lingering interest in anti-Federalism uh, on the new left. The anti-Federalists... Uh, were not well treated by the scholars of James McGregor Burns's generation. Uh, the most influential writer about the Anti-Federalists in the 1950s and 1960s, the uh, contemporary of James McGregor Burns, was the historian Cecilia Kenyon. And she wrote a very famous article about the Anti-Federalists, and the title was Men of Little Faith. Um, and uh, she explains in the article that by using the word faith, she's not talking about religion. They were religious people. In re religious terms, they were actually men of great faith. The faith that they had little of was faith in America, she says. The anti-federalists uh, distrusted the national government. They distrusted the idea of the United States of America. Their primary allegiances were local. Uh, they thought of themselves as citizens of a particular state. Um, and uh, uh, faith in the nation. Uh, was exactly what they were missing. And in that sense, you know, from uh, uh, the debates that took place in Cecilia Kenyon's era, uh, uh, if you were a, a liberal, if you were a person of the left, the anti-federalists were the, the kind of the worst you could have. They were racists. They were localists. They, they, they were opposed to national citizen, citizenship and so on. For the exact same reason, the anti-federalists were heroes to the right in that era. Uh, no one did more to resurrect the anti-federalists than a political philosopher at the University of Chicago named Herbert Storing, who was one of the leading students of Leo Strauss. 
And one of uh, the major Straussian projects, uh, or at least one wing, what we call the East Coast Straussians, who are very different from the West Coast Straussians. Um, it's actually, I'm sorry, it's the West Coast Straussians who made this their objective, was to argue uh, that America did produce great political thinkers, that there is an Ameri- a viable American tradition of political thought. And the f- anti-federalists were part of that. And for Herbert Storing, the anti-federalists were wonderful precisely because they were so conservative and they, uh, they distrusted government and all of these things. That, that was sort of the, the historical configuration about how to treat the anti-federalists. But that began to change during the New Left years. Um, for those of you who... Um, uh, may have had some uh, relationship with the new left in the 1960s. One of the greatest names uh, to emerge in that decade was uh, the historian Staunton Lind, who was the son of uh, Robert and Helen Merrill Lind, famous sociologists. And Staunton Lind really embodied uh, much of the spirit of the new left. He was a historian before he became a labor activist. His, he published his master's thesis as a book, and it was on the anti-federalists in which he sort of found in the anti-federalists people that as a 1960s radical he could really identify with. He liked the localism. He liked the fact that they were suspicious of national authority. Um, Staunton Lynn never did pursue an academic career. Um, he uh, became a lawyer um, and uh, became an activist defending local communities. Um, and in his role as a lawyer, he did exactly the same thing. Uh, he would uh, use the kind of arguments about the arguments first fashioned by the anti-federalists to um, um, argue on behalf of the right of local communities to protect themselves against impositions from outside their, their, their community, and he was very, very effective about that. For other people on the New Left, they pointed out that the uh, federalists, uh, John Adams, passed the Alien and Sedition Act, which the anti-federalists furiously opposed. So maybe the anti-federalists were good because they were civil libertarians, and they didn't like this, uh, uh, the, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were so violative of our civil liberties. So for some 60s and 70s activists, they liked the anti-federalists as kind of an early version of the uh, ACLU. Um, a, a very, very good historian, Saul Cornell, has drawn out all the parallels between uh, the right and the left and the anti-federalists. He says, uh, in a quote from something he wrote, in a real sense, the anti-federalist ranks included both the Goldwater Republicans and students for a democratic society. Um, and in that sense, I think he's right uh, that you can um, um, see and appreciate uh, how a set of ideas that uh, were at, at one point in our history almost automatically associated with small things and with uh, distrust of national ambition came to be very attractive to certain kinds of liberal or leftist thinkers for obvious reasons. You know, the the Vietnam War, all those things made power look so bad and made national authority look so horrendous that just as some people would turn back to Calhoun, other people on the left would turn back to the anti-federalists. If you read Cecilia Kenyon, however, it would be pretty hard to do that. Uh, Cecilia Kenyon painted a picture of anti-federalists as people who were so racist, uh, so intent on protecting white communities, uh, that uh, for anyone interested in what today we call diversity, um, that it was pretty hard, really, to, to, to take the anti-federalists as kind of paragons for a future 
uh, progressive politics. And so uh, this uh, interest in the Anti-Federalists was actually something of a minority taste. But that was not true of yet another 18th century set of ideas, which became much more influential on the left, in fact became hugely popular on the left, but still had all these characteristic features of 18th century uh, political thought. And uh, this was uh, what would come to be called the Republican tradition or civic republicanism or any one of a, a, a number of, uh, of different names. Um, we're not talking here about the Republican Party. We're talking about something that predated the Republican Party by a hundred years or so, uh, by a tradition that emerged really out of Europe, um, uh, came to the United States, and made virtue, uh, Republican virtue, central to its understanding of the way uh, the world ought to operate. That the small r republicanism is a way of thinking uh, strongly influenced by the classical era, Greece and Rome, um, and, and sees the cultivation of virtue as one of the most important functions that any political system can do, and argues generally that uh, virtue is only cultivated when closest to home, that the more distant a, a political authority, the more corrupt that political authority will be, the more alien it will be. Uh, if you believe that one of the purposes of government is to cultivate good character and to cultivate virtue, then in a kind of Jeffersonian sense, you want uh, government to be closer to the people, um, um, uh, more organic and grow uh, out of uh, people's own uh, 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 specific localities. Um, as it turns out, one of the uh, most fascinating and one of the most interesting uh, books uh, written by a contemporary political philosopher is an effort to revive the Republican uh, tradition for contemporary times. And uh, uh, those of you who know this stuff will know that I'm referring to Michael Sandel uh, and to his book, Democracy's Discontent, which has had a huge uh, uh, impact uh, on, on lots of people and on the way they think about politics. Uh, Michael Sandel is one of our foremost political philosophers. And for uh, an academic treatise dealing with complicated issues, uh, his books have been all but uh, bestsellers. Um, Democracy's discontent, I mean, the very title, sort of the word, with the word discontent in the title, suggests that this is not the optimistic scenario of the generation of McGregor Burns and Schlesinger and so on, that something's wrong, there's a, a distemper in our, our, in our body politic. Um, Michael Sandel has two objectives in his book. Uh, one is a philosophical point that he wants to make. Um, uh, it's a point that's been debated by moral philosophers since Immanuel Kant and, and probably before, and that is the relationship between the right and the good. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I don't want to go into the details of, uh, the, of the philosophy, but uh, some contemporary philosophers have argued uh, that um, government must be neutral between competing conceptions of the good that it is not government's job to identify one particular conception of what the good or the good life should be and to push that, that on some of the fundamental issues of the day, government must be neutral between competing conceptions of the good. And Sandel is uh, criticizing that notion and saying that government must be engaged in character building. It must take positions on what is good and what is bad. It must seek to cultivate virtue and to discourage whatever virtue's opposite is. Uh, so that's one point, a philosophical point that Sandel 
tries to make. And then he has a historical point to add to it. And the basic flow of his historical argument is that in the 18th century, Americans believed that government should not be neutral between various conceptions of the good. They had a virtuous conception of politics, but that over time we lost that. And over time, our political system became transformed into one which philosophers call deontological, that, that, that government will remain completely neutral and will never tell people what they ought to do, uh, that government's purpose is essentially to provide people with the means to do whatever they choose to do. Um, and uh, as he develops this argument, uh, it's very, very interesting because almost all of the people that I would put into the camp of arguing for a great America, Sandel sees as people who adhere to this idea that government should be neutral, and he doesn't like them, whereas all the people that I see as pretty much adhering to the idea of a good America are people he likes and people who thinks we're on the right track. Uh, so, for example, he, uh, 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 he praises the Knights of Labor, uh, an early labor organization, but denounces the American Federation of Labor, uh, a later organization, because in his view, the Knights of Labor was an organization that tried to cultivate among working people a sense of virtue, whereas the AFL and the CIO, they were only known for Samuel Gompers's favorite word, more, just give us more and, and, and so on. The fact that the Knights of Labor was uh, in many ways a racist organization and was against immigration reform uh, and was strictly for shutting down the doors to immigrants, well, he doesn't emphasize that part, but that is exactly one of the reasons why I tend to be distrustful of the goodness version, because it's based upon, if you ask whose values should government support, um, then it auto almost automatically comes down to those who've been in this country a long time, and before you know it, you're talking about a, a Christian or a Protestant uh, a set of values. Um, the most interesting part of Sandel's book, though, is the critique he launches against the New Deal and against Franklin Donald Roosevelt. In many ways, Franklin Donald Roosevelt is one of Sandel's greatest enemies. Uh, uh, Sandel uh, says that the New Deal is to economics as Roe versus Wade is to morality. It's an interesting point he makes, that Roe versus Wade says to a woman, you, you can now have an abortion, and it makes no judgment about whether it's a good thing to have an abortion or not. In other words, you have the freedom to do it. It's not government's responsibility to tell you whether it's a good thing. It's, government is totally neutral between a, a woman scratching her head, should I have an abortion? Is it moral to have an abortion? Is it not? Government's not going to give her any advice after Roe versus Wade. Of course, when the decision is repealed in the next few years, government will take a position on abortion. But right now, uh, it, it, it doesn't, or at least not formally. What does this have to do with the New Deal? Well, I think it's one of Sandel's most brilliant points, although I don't agree with it, that in his view, the New Deal, by essentially trying to use Keynesian techniques of priming the pump to put money into consumers' hands to get out of the Great Depression, was telling people, go out and spend so that we can get out of this depression, but we're not going to tell you how to spend your money. We're not going to encourage any conception of what the good life should be. It's a pure program of trying to stimulate economic growth. And a, a program of trying to stimulate econ economic growth, in Sandel's view, is completely neutral with respect to values. It's, and it, it is an interesting kind of comparison. So uh, Sandel is not, um, he's certainly not a um, political activist like Lanny Guineer was. Uh, um, Sandel also doesn't 
frequently identify himself as uh, 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 even having a political ideology. But he does write throughout his book that one of the things that he thinks is important for liberals to do is to reclaim ground from the fundamentalists by showing that it's possible for liberals to have a value-based politics just as Christian fundamentalists do. And, and in that sense, I think he is engaged. He is making a political intervention, uh, and it's a political invention in favor of small-r republicanism. He's not the only one, by the way. Uh, there was a, a very interesting Ph.D. thesis at Oxford University that was turned into a book on the Republican small-r tradition. Its author happens to be better known than the book. Uh, the author is former Senator Gary Hart, who, after he retired from the Senate, uh, Senate went to Oxford and got a PhD in political science and published this thesis as a book. And it's a, a, an attempt to evoke Jefferson and the re Republican tradition and all these things. And Hart, who's a very interesting man, he chaired that commission with uh, Warren Rudman on security that pretty much predicted that something like 9-11 would happen. Um, so uh, he, he's by no means a fool. I, I, I think he's a very, very smart and intelligent fellow. But he somehow envisions that we can defend ourselves through Jeffersonian militias and uh, yeoman-like calls to arms. And it's an odd sort of thing that he's interested both in national security issues and in this Jeffersonian vision, which he makes every attempt in his book to uh, try to uh, show would be relevant, but convinces me at least that it's not. <clears throat> so I've talked then about uh, a kind of Calhounianism, a kind of anti-federalism, and a kind of republicanism. Um, there's yet another trend that I think is really interesting and, and very, very influential, and it could be called the kind of Calvinism. Um, a, um, a Calvin and Calvinism was very much part of my story uh, the first night and the first lectures uh, where I talked about how a kind of distrust of human purpose um, and a kind of pessimistic reading of human nature uh, was pretty central to the good America vision and not to the great America vision. And I identified uh, certain kinds of evangelical movements in the 19th century uh, as having a Calvinist basis uh, to them. Um, Calvinism is not dead. Uh, it was actually brought to life by um, uh, one of the... Uh, uh, contemporary writers who I think is one of the most brilliant um, of, of all of the contemporary intellectuals that I deal with, uh, and that's the late historian Christopher Lash, who I think is, is best understood as a kind of neo-Calvinist, as someone who is uh, writing about progress um, with a question mark, uh, very, very distrustful of modern society as it has emerged, very worried that we've lost a sense of sin in our society, uh, very gloomy uh, about our prospects, um, uh, but always in a very, very challenging way. He's an enormously challenging and an enormously stimulating figure who's very, very hard to predict where he's going to come down. He's also a brilliant writer and a great stylist, and his death was a great loss to uh, uh, American letters. Um, when in, in The True and Only Heaven, which is Christopher Lash's magnum opus, he cites all kinds of people that he really likes and admires, uh, Josiah Royce, Ralph Waldo Emerson, William James. He puts together all kinds of interesting combinations. But essentially, the thinkers that he thinks were on the right track were thinkers who talked about limits, who understood that there were limits to our ambition and limits to our sense of purpose. These limits could be created by God. They could be created by nature. 
or they could create, be created by man's own infallible, man's own capacity to just muck things up. But for whatever the reason, um, Lash is, a, a, is an extreme, a, extreme skeptic of progress um, and um, uh, someone who wants to remind us at all times that we should avoid any kind of Prometheanism, uh, any kind of sort of Faustian bargain uh, with modernity. Um, I see the ideas of Christopher Lash and all kinds of other contemporary writers, um, um, even people who may not have read Christopher Lash. Uh, I have a colleague in my uh, at Boston College where I teach, and uh, an economist who teaches in the sociology department, Julia Chore. Um, and I've, uh, she's written books about how Americans work too much and they shop too much. Um, I'm not sure whether she's ever read Christopher Lash, but much of her work echoes with Lash. Uh, her critique of consumption uh, is based upon the idea that uh, we're much too materialistic. We buy many more things that we need. There ought to be certain kind of limits uh, 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 on us. Her book about the overworked American resonates with very much the same kind of thing. We work too hard. We don't have enough vacation time. Uh, we're stretching ourselves too thin. Uh, we're all workaholics. Um, I think people probably know her work. They're, they're, her books are widely read, but you know you can certainly get a sense. Uh, I would hope from from what I'm saying uh, that there's the same concern with limits. There's the same concern that uh, we are uh, over uh, extending ourselves and that we need to sort of slow down and question progress and question our reliance upon uh, material goods. Um, I would not say that Julia Cho was a religious thinker per se, and again, I'm, I'm not sure whether she's read John Calvin, for example, uh, but she does kind of recognize that uh, she's calling on people uh, to reject a kind of this-worldly preoccupation, uh, that the, uh, too much of a preoccupation with the things in this world will lead us uh, our souls. I mean, there is a sense of soul in Julia Chore, a word that many people would be reluctant to use, but there's a sense that our soul will be corrupted uh, by all these uh, things. And she sort of at one point admires alternative religious communities like the Shakers and so on that, uh, in her view, have rejected uh, uh, of these things. Um, it's not the most ambitious of programs, I would say, when she finally gets around to this famous question that almost all of us who write in this area are asked, including I always get asked this too, and I, I'm equally as awkward in finding an answer as Julia Chore, but you know, the question, well, what do we do about it? Um, once you've made a critique, you're always asked, what do you do about it? Chore's recommendations, you read this book, and what's she going to say? What, what do we, she says, well, you don't have to buy CDs, you can take them out of the library. That's sort of one of the things that she uh, uh, says. Uh, um, uh, you don't have to buy as many gifts during holidays. Uh, actually, one of the things I must say I enjoy more than anything else is buying gifts during holidays. But there you go. It's going to be taken away from me. My poor children will never let me talk about Julia Shore again. Um, it's not the most ambitious program, but it's almost as if it's the most perfectly appropriate program for the time in which she was writing. Because she's writing at the time of small things. She's writing her critiques of America at the same time that Bill Clinton is telling us that the best he can do is school uniforms and V-chips and televisions. In other words, just at the time when our, our larger political ambitions have been lowered, when instead of seeking some new positive programs, 
all we can think about are, you know, school uniforms and our political system, well, it follows that social critics can't come up with much more than um, CDs. When we had presidents of great ambition, like Theodore Roosevelt, our critics were also people of great ambition, like the muckrakers. I mean, the most, the greatest period of social criticism in America, the most ambitious period, was the period in which our political ambitions were also great. So sure does, in, in that sense, I think reflect uh, uh, aspects of uh, the era in, 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 which, in which he was writing. <clears throat> Running throughout everybody I've discussed so far uh, is the notion, essentially, that um, something bad happens when things get too large, when they get out of control, either when uh, politics becomes too centralized or when people's ambitions become too large, uh, when our Faustian proclivities become too large. And it's almost as if largeness is the problem. So it shouldn't be surprising that one of the most influential books on the left throughout the 1970s was a book called Small is Beautiful, uh, written in 1973 by the British economist E.F. Schumacher. It's actually a long book, um, uh, which always struck me as weird. It's long and wordy and uh, so on. I wish he had taken his own advice when he wrote it. Um, uh, or put it another way, I don't believe in Small is Beautiful, except when talking about Small is Beautiful. But uh, uh, the book had a huge impact. Uh, um, and three, I will give Schumacher credit. In three words, he captured the spirit of the zeitgeist. Uh, and any author can rest assured that they've made a major contribution if they can just do that. Um, because Small is Beautiful really did seem to capture uh, uh, what um, uh, was on the minds of so many people at this time. Large is bad. Small is beautiful. Largeness in anything is bad. Smallness in anything uh, is good. Um, the people who took... Schumacher's message uh, to the greatest heart were uh, people who were concerned with the uh, environment. Um, and environmentalism is another interesting um, way in which I think liberals lost their sense of ambition over the last 30 or 40 years. Not because they were preoccupied by the environment, that's perfectly appropriate, but because of the way they were preoccupied by the environment. Uh, when we look over the tradition of environmental activism and environmental thinking in America, it's really as if you can find two very different strains uh, of uh, what people should try to do to protect the environment. Um, one of those strains is often called pastoral, and the other is uh, frequently called progressive. The pastoral strain uh, is an old one in our history. It goes back to Henry David Thoreau, and it continues up to John Muir um, and many contemporary environmentalists. And it sees nature as pure. Uh, it sees nature as something that should be protected against human intervention. I mean, you can almost see, or at least I hope you can see, the, all the categories I've been um, trying to discuss with you for three nights being taken and applied to the environment. Large is bad. Ambition is bad. Uh, uh, human beings are to be distrusted. Human nature really can't be uh, uh, trusted. The, the natural things are inherently pure. They're inherently innocent. They should be left alone to flourish on their own, and, and so on. Um, Thoreau, certainly um, uh, one of the most uh, uh, brilliant writers uh, in the American tradition. Actually, Thoreau had very positive things to say about America and even about American greatness. Thoreau was a great admirer of one of the principal spokesmen for the idea of American greatness, 
Senator Daniel Webster. But uh, Thoreau broke with Webster uh, over slavery and anti-slavery issues, and he became a, a kind of a rejectionist of politics. Pol- everything having to do with politics uh, struck him as uh, uh, corrupting. Uh, uh, corrupting our intentions, and uh, nature was the alternative to uh, the uh, uh, impurities the, uh, uh, that, that will always attend uh, on politics. What people who work in this tradition call the progressive environmental strain is totally different. It's very political. Its most representative figure was uh, Gifford Pinchot, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's forestry uh, person who was in charge of the forests, and Pinchot was a bureaucrat and consummate politician uh, and, and inside the beltway manipulator, uh, anything but a purist. He cut all kinds of deals. Uh, he wanted to see uh, the forests uh, protected, uh, but he thought that the only way to protect them uh, was through a kind of regulatory apparatus, a regulatory apparatus that would use government that might even have to cut deals with timber companies themselves, might even have to make accommodations with uh, uh, um, the timber companies. But based on Pinchot's, uh, Gifford Pinchot's ideas were really strongly influenced by the idea that forest and forestries and all those natural resources are good things because they make America a great country. The conservation of natural resources, he wrote, is the basis and the only permanent basis of national success. Um, and uh, the, it, it's the Gifford Pinchot vision that leads more to using government to create national parks, uh, but national parks for the purpose of being used by human beings, not national parks to be some kind of reserve where human beings would never be allowed uh, uh, to go. Uh, and it's an interesting conflict that's always existed in American environmental thought between one that rejects politics as imperfect and one that understands uh, um, in a kind of Teddy Roosevelt sense that uh, 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 um, uh, preservation should take on a different character. As Pinchot wrote in his manifesto, he said, I stand for the Roosevelt politics because they set the common good of all of us above the private gain of some of us because they recognize that the livelihood of the small man is just as important to the nation than the profit of the big man. There was this sense of the nation, the sense that everyone should have access to the things that the nation should produce. Now, so here you have two traditions, and it's interesting as to which of them would have the greatest legacy when the environmental movement developed in the 1970s. Um, And it's especially interesting that at least some, uh, I mean, the... The Thoreauvian vision was enormously influential among environmental writers. Uh, a contemporary Thoreauvian is uh, Wendell Berry, uh, a, a well-known poet and essayist uh, from Kentucky. Who, he dedicated his most recent book to the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He says in his book, I'm a, I'm a citizen of Kentucky before I am a citizen of the United States. And it's the same sort of anti-federalist idea. He really is a... Wendell Berry really is a contemporary anti-federalist, but it takes the form of an environmentalism and a protection of the environment. Bill McGibbon uh, is another environmental writer who uh, thinks that Thoreau actually was too too impure uh, and criticizes what he calls Thoreau's anthropocentrism. Uh, Thoreau was too friendly to human beings. Um, Thoreau still wanted human beings to be able to use nature, whereas McGibbon's writings are filled with these things like, who are we to think that nature cares about us, and so on. So among intellectuals and writers, the pastoral tradition is much more alive 
than the uh, progressive tradition. You would think that that would not be true among politicians. The politicians were more likely to uh, be influenced by Gifford Pinchot than by Henry David Thoreau. But in fact, there have been two prominent politicians who have uh, written about the environment, and I'm not including uh, Gary Hart. Two of the candidates for president in 2000 were environmentalists and had written about the environment, and one was named Ralph Nader and the other was named Albert Gore. And both of their books owed much more to Thoreau than to Pinchot. Both books were actually anti-political kind of screeds about the purity of nature and the uh, horrible uh, features of uh, human beings. Nader himself uh, has uh, written a couple of uh, autobiographical accounts of his life, um, and he makes it very clear that politics is evil, uh, compromise is evil. I mean, all of these things, there really is a, a purist dimension to Ralph Nader, uh, as you've all seen by his behavior over the last few years. He is a man who thinks of himself as completely incorruptible. Um, he's a man who puts the good ahead of the great in everything he does and compromises. So all those things are, are alien to him. He's uh, fascinated by outsiders. Uh, he has a kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington innocence about his persona and so on. In actual fact, if you share any of my political views, he's a, a one-man self-destructive machine uh, who's turned the country over to some of the worst for, but not as he sees it, as he sees it, he's Mr. Purity. Um, everyone else is corrupt, and everything he does is virtuous and good. Um, Earth in the Balance, Al Gore's book, is one of the most astonishing books ever written by a candidate for a high office in the United States in its history. It, the Republicans made so much fun of it. And if you actually go and read it, the Republicans were right. Um, it's hysterical. Um, it's a book that uh, um, uh, takes probably the most depressing writers in the modern world, Alice Miller and Gregory Bateson and R.D. Lang and others, and uh, says that, you know, we are schizophrenic, all of us human beings, and uh, we're deranged people. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, if you're looking for sort of examples of a, someone who has the most negative ideas of human nature you could imagine, you actually find them in Earth of the Balance. Um, um, I don't know why uh, uh, Gore wrote this book. I really don't. Um, uh, uh, he must have known at some point he was going to run for president and people would get out the book and use it against him. The things the Republicans don't like are uh, and one thing. The things that I don't like are something else. Uh, the book is filled with um, Heideggerian uh, um, amusings about being and, and, and so on. Um, and uh, earthly matters just never enter into the book. Uh, the book actually never touches on questions of social justice, um, completely ignored. The only time that Gore comes down to earth in this book and talks about something that people actually do is when he talks about consumption and takes Julia Choi's position. We spend too much, we're too materialistic, and so on. So, you know, it's something of an oddity, I think, that politicians who you would think would m lean much more to what I've been calling the progressive tradition in environmental thought would actually be much more on the purest tradition. There was one figure um, uh, who got some notoriety for a while, but has probably since disappeared uh, uh, back into a certain amount of obscurity, who was well known as an environmentalist. Uh, uh, like Gary Hardy was from Colorado, his name was Richard Lamb, uh, uh, Richard Lamb, and he was the governor of Colorado for a while. Then he became a prominent environmentalist, 
And then he came very, very active in the anti-immigration movement. Um, and um, uh, that's an interesting connection, too. Many of you probably know that there's been a furious fight in the Sierra Club about whether environmentalists uh, should shut the doors of the United States to immigrants, because if we really want to protect that environment, um, and there really is a carrying capacity that's going to overwhelm it, then the more people who come to the United States, the more the environment will be destroyed. And so Richard Lamb uh, started arguing, he started arguing in favor of euthanasia, because the more people you kill, then the fewer people will destroy nature. Uh, he became a big advocate of uh, defending a woman's right to an abortion because the more babies that don't get born, uh, the better the forest will be protected. And then he sort of took it to the last step and, and said he's anti-immigrant. Um, and uh, that raises an interesting question about the role of immigration in ideas of American greatness. Um, generally speaking, uh, um, people who uh, argue for, on the, for, uh, for the notion of a great America, understand that one of the resources of a great America is people, and that uh, the more people here, uh, the more powerful and better our country will be, uh, especially when we can attract people from around the world. Um, immigrants have made tremendous contributions to America. If, if you're in the American Greatness Camp, you sort of view immigration as like a way of recharging the batteries. Uh, the idea is that originally it was sort of the original white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that define the country, but they kind of run out of energy. And that's why you need immigrants to come in and re-energize, re-develop a sense of American purpose. Um, I've mentioned a number of writers who wrote books in the 1950s, like uh, James McGregor Burns and Cecilia Kenyon and so on. There was a very interesting book written about immigration in 1958 in a, long, in a very, very similar way. It, tied it said immigration was good, it tied immigration to national greatness, and its author happened to be a United States senator interested in running for president named John F. Kennedy. Um, and he wrote this little book called A Nation of Immigrants in 1958. It was reissued after his death, um, 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 and uh, his brother Robert, of course, who would be also lose his life, wrote the preface to the second uh, edition and, and credited the 1958 book with stimulating the reforms that led to the Immigration Reform Act of 1965, uh, which abolished our old system of quotas. Um, and uh, so, I, I, you know, I think I tend to view uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the great America people. Teddy Roosevelt was also uh, in favor of immigration uh, uh, um, uh, as uh, taking steps that are necessary to build and strengthen the society. Now, what about people on the left and liberal thinkers? Well, there is a tradition in America of certain groups that we usually identify as being on the left, as very suspicious of immigration. Um, African Americans have traditionally been very suspicious of immigration. Uh, Booker T. Washington gave a denunciation of immigration uh, in his Atlanta Exposition Address of 1895, um, uh, and uh, other African-American leaders worry uh, that immigration will depress already low wages of people living pretty close to the poverty line even further, probably correctly. Um, labor unions have often been uh, uh, less than enthusiastic about immigration, especially the Knights of Labor. Um, environmentalists, I've already mentioned. Um, um, birth control advocates like Margaret Sanger uh, were also furiously against immigration um, on sort of population control kind of grounds. 
Even today, there are some uh, writers on the left who worry about immigration. It's actually a much bigger issue in Europe than in the United States. And in Europe, you could almost say that the left's position in Europe is against immigration, especially from Muslim countries. For the fear is that the gains that feminists and gays have made would be lost if immigrants coming from very traditional conservative religious backgrounds were to come. And there's this great fear that, uh, uh, that those gains would be lost. That's less prominent in the United States, although um, uh, a very interesting thinker, the late uh, political philosopher Susan Muller Oaken, um, wrote an essay called Is Multiculturalism Bad for Women, in which he basically said it was, uh, representing that kind of sort of sense that women's gains uh, uh, would be lost if the country were swept by waves of much more conservative, culturally conservative immigrants. So it's not completely foreign from our shores as well. But uh, fortunately, I think this is one area uh, where, generally speaking, these days it seems uh, the right are the people who are against immigration and the left tend to be people who favor it. The recent book by Samuel Huntington, a conservative writer, attacking some of our immigration policies are, are an example of that. Uh, for me, the really interesting question, though, is not whether you're in favor of immigration or not, but what kind of nation you imagine immigrants contributing to. And uh, I don't have time to go into it at, at great length, uh, but there are two different visions of what we require from immigrants. One is that they adopt to our culture, and the other is that they adopt to our creed. Uh, and um, um, I'm in the creedal school uh, in the sense that I think that what we ought to ask of immigrants um, is not that they change their culture. I don't care what their culture is, they, uh, what language they speak at home, uh, uh, all of those things. But I do think that the one thing we ought to ask of immigrants is that they become Americans in the sense that they commit themselves to the American creed, to American ideals, uh, to the ideals of liberty and equality. You really can't change your culture. Culture is something that is uh, ascribed to you, uh, but you can change a creed. And to ask people to uh, uh, give up their culture strikes me as a uh, uh, um, not, not the right way to go. I have good company. Uh, the creedal school includes people like one of your local residents, Michael Walzer, uh, who uh, essentially argues that uh, uh, American citizenship is uh, um, not something that grows out of our culture. We don't have an American culture that shapes uh, American citizenship. As Michael Walzer wrote in his fascinating essay, What Does It Mean to Be an American? He said, the symbols and ceremonies of American citizenship cannot be drawn from the culture of the British Isles. Our Congress is not a commons. Guy Fawkes Day is not an American holiday. The Magna Carta has never been one of our sacred texts. For Walzer, Immigrants adopt the creed, and, and which he says are symbolized by ceremonies that are culturally anonymous. They're invented rather than inherited. They're voluntist, voluntaristic in style and narrowly political in context. The flag, the pledge, the fourth, the Constitution. What does it mean to be an American? In other words, it means you pledge your allegiance to the United States. And I think that uh, that way of thinking uh, about immigration is a uh, one that will contribute uh, to a stronger society. I'm not sure it's one that all advocates for multiculturalism, however, share, because the very term multiculturalism suggests that it's culture rather than creed that's important uh, to, uh, uh, to many of these thinkers. Well, let me bring this to a close. Uh, 
uh, I've um, um, talked about um, a number of ways in which I think I can identify certain kinds of liberal or progressive writers in this country um, who um, I, I see as being fearful and defensive of some of the changes that have taken place in their society uh, and much more engaged in the process of trying to protect gains already made than uh, advance things uh, uh, to new levels. Um, um, and for many of these thinkers, in, in a way that's very hard for me to understand and grasp, uh, the 18th century has kind of become the model of where they look. They look back to the anti-federalists. They look back to the founders. Um, they try to kind of re-capture uh, uh, an 18th century past as if the best and most important challenges facing us could be met by evoking this world of the 18th century. How can it be surprising, therefore, that when we had such huge crises in our society as, for example, the Vietnam War, that the most prominent critic of the Vietnam War was a senator from Arkansas, J. William Fulbright, who was an 18th century person and who was a person that was uh, an opponent of civil rights, an opponent of uh, the whole tradition of racial progress, but who evoked 18th century ideals in almost everything he wrote. A fascinating example, I think, of how an 18th century used for a 20th century purpose. Given that, can you really be surprised that the most eloquent voice in Congress denouncing the war in Iraq was Robert Byrd's, a man once a member of the Ku Klux Klan, a Southern reactionary, a man steeped in 18th century political vocabulary, a man who literally seems to step out of the history books. Can it really be surprising that the critics of American foreign policy, Howard Zinn, turns back to the 18th century for his inspiration? In fact, Howard Zinn, during the Vietnam War, wrote of the Viet Cong as if they were Jeffersonian Republicans. Uh, and everything through his books is, oh, they're, they're trying to create a good agrarian, virtuous society over there uh, in Vietnam. Can it really be surprising that the spate of books that have recently come out attacking President Bush and the war in Iraq from writers on the left evoke the 18th century? Lewis Laffam of Harper's Magazine, uh, Mark Crispin Miller of New York University, um, all of them writing books in which they evoke Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Republican virtue, see uh, Bush as corrupting of all those things, uh, and so on. And finally, as if icing on the cake, the man who in many ways symbolized more than any other single person in America uh, the opposition to the war in Vietnam, Senator George McGovern, himself has just published a book evoking the 18th century and explicitly about the 18th century and upholding 18th century ideas of, of liberty. Um, the 18th century, uh, which is, uh, uh, has never died, uh, and uh, it seems to be the American left that is keeping it all together. Um, I, I think uh, I don't need to elaborate that I find this an insufficient uh, uh, set of ideas for contemporary challenges. Um, now, we don't have a fourth lecture. See, if, I, if we had a fourth lecture, I would have to then answer your question. What do we do about it all? Where do we go uh, uh, from here? Um, I'll probably have to think about that some, and I probably do have some answers, but uh, I've talked long enough, so let me stop at this point, and we can open it up for discussion. <laughs> Thank you.
much. And if you want to ask the big questions, now is your moment. We have a few minutes uh, left for questions, I think. Yes. Uh, many people in my generation, where, especially in the 60s, many people in my generation became aware, especially in the 60s, that we can't trust our government, not just because uh, that the power is often used or sometimes used for terrible purposes like the Vietnam War, but also because the government lies to us. Um, I don't know anybody, uh, most of my friends happen to be on the left, but I don't know anybody who believes what the government says most of the time. Uh, they don't tell us the truth if it's not convenient, and they tell us lies if that's the most convenient thing to do. Um, do you think that may have some, uh, uh, that may be part of why there is a tendency not to look to the national government for uh, progressive uh, initiatives? No, I, I'm sure, absolutely. Um, and, and there probably are reasons for believing that a lot of things that uh, government says are not true, and, and in some cases deliberate lies. Um, but the question is, what do you do? Do you then just reject ideas of the nation? Um, or do you, tr I mean, because I'm not even necessarily at this point talking about big government as something, uh, I'm not advocating against this pre preference for smallness that the answer is something called big government. Uh, I think it's much more big ambition. Um, and if big ambition can be accomplished without huge government, that, that probably makes a lot more sense. Uh, so what's interesting to me is the way so many of us, we're probably the same generation, uh, are reacting to um, the abuses of power, um, came to just distrust power completely. And I think what we're now seeing um, is uh, another political movement in, in control in Washington that's not afraid of using power. Um, and um, we can see what power can do. I mean, you may not like what the Republicans are doing, but you ought to become pretty impressed by the fact that it is possible for a political movement to um, develop an objective and to try to get a hold of as much political power as it can, because political power is a priceless asset if you want to change the world the way you, the way you like it. obviously uh, reread a lot of the uh, literature that we've all touched upon very briefly in the 60s, 70s, <laughs> or 80s, but what certain themes seem to be really absent, and I'm just curious whether that impression that you're leaving, that the left literature simply does not talk about major foreign policy issues, major economic issues, the labor movement, uh, justice and, and human rights, civil rights. It's as if the loss of ambition is the silence of voices about foreign policy, uh, economic growth, and justice. So is that impression correct, or is it just a choice of, of the weakest spots of the left is what you've talked about today? Well, I talked about the weakest spots of the right yesterday. Um, I, I picked out a lot of conservative thinkers that are somewhat more obscure than some of the ones that are better known because I, I, I wanted to show a tendency. And so I'd say the same charge is probably appropriate, especially in the version you heard tonight. Um, 
But what I've tried to do in both, when I talked about the conservative retreat, I did try to show that there were conservatives that resisted that in, in, in the name of American greatness. And I tried to do the same thing tonight. I was citing people, Burns, uh, Cecilia Kenyon, Kennedy, uh, and others, uh, who um, kept alive that sense of ambition, and I could have cited a lot more. Um, Walter Ruther, uh, for example, uh, in, in the labor movement, would certainly be someone uh, um, uh, who I think uh, was generally, uh, had very, very strong sense of ambition for the United States. I mentioned uh, Galbraith at one point. His career has kind of gone in different sorts of ways, but uh, his book, uh, American Capitalism, The Concept of Countervailing Power, which he wrote in the 1950s, was an argument for bigness uh, in a kind of Teddy Roosevelt sort of sense uh, that I would certainly include in this category. And I'd be open to any other suggestions. I, I, I'm not here to dump on the left, believe me. I'm here, though, to show that um, I think it's unquestionable that there has been a sense of retreat on the part of a significant enough number of liberal thinkers. And, you know, what I'm really trying to do is warn other liberal thinkers against that. Uh, I, I'm not really... Uh, trying to bias the case. So I'm open for any suggestions of others that should be included. If ambition is an aspect of the great, uh, how would you define ambition? Consider, for example, Bush, who promotes what he does is both good and great. So, yeah. you know, what is ambition? Well, that's, I, I sort of said this uh, to someone last night. I mean, since it's three lectures and not everyone's at every lecture, I mean, I, I did go, I tried to go out of my way in the first lecture to say that whatever the ambition was, whatever the concept of national citizenship was, it had to be rooted in a conception of equality and liberty for Americans. And so while I'm, I'm second to none in admiring Mr. Bush's tactical political skills. Um, he's putting them in the service of, uh, of, of readings of what equality and liberty require that would make us a weaker society. It takes an amazing, what I'm learning from Bush is that it takes an amazing amount of determination to weaken us. In other words, that weakening is, just doesn't come naturally. Um, um, that you can really develop a project for weakening the country um, um, with, with deliberation. And, uh, because ultimately, you, you strengthen America by strengthening Americans. I mean, I think there's a fundamental relationship between the two. And if you make it much more difficult for Americans to work and to live at their full capacity as human beings, uh, to live the longest and most productive lives they can, uh, then you're weakening the country. Um, so it's not just through the, uh, the simply reducing the size of government that you weaken the country. It's by reducing human capacity and human potential. And I have absolutely no doubt that uh, the consequences of Mr. Bush's policies, if allowed to uh, uh, continue, would be to weaken America by weakening Americans. Uh, the death of utopianism, the collapse of uh, socialist ideal, uh, the kind of strain of utopianism in 19th century America and even in New Dealism and so forth. Would, is that account for the, the sort of dearth of ideas uh, coming from the left right now? Well, I, that's a good question. I don't really address it, but, you know, just 
My immediate reaction is that uh, utopias come in sort of both good and great forms. Uh, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward was a utopia that really resonated with the goodness tradition, uh, with tradition of virtue and so on. Um, in other words, it's, it's kind of a reactionary utopia, uh, whereas there might be other utopian visions that would be more of a kind of progressive utopian vision. Um, but it may be true that sort of behind the story I'm telling is another story that I haven't told um, about a kind of worldwide collapse of ambition, uh, which, you know, was represented by the, uh, uh, the failure of communism, the stagnation of social democracy in Europe. We, uh, we're certainly not the only country that's witnessed things like what I'm talking about. And uh, I'm now, for this semester, living in Germany, and you could tell a very similar story there about how the post-war social democratic idea has just kind of run out of energy, and the left in Germany is completely without energy. Um, the Green Party's trying to sort of stimulate some of it, but, you know, it, it may relate to a kind of larger sense that all utopian visions are to be distrusted. So, appreciate the question. Um, shortly after 9-11, I heard a voice come out of Washington that I felt spoke to me and was very um, strong and had a lot of very good ideas and was, in fact, liberal, and it has been completely shut down. Um, and that voice was uh, Tom Daschle. And I just wondered, how do you categorize him and what do you think of yeah. the politicking that has surrounded what's, ha what's happened to him? Well, I, I feel very, very bad about his losing his position. I think, you know, he's, he's been in a very difficult position, um, Tom Daschle, uh, because he's a Democratic, he's been a Democratic senator from an extremely conservative state. And um, he, he, uh, um, as minority leader, that's a very, very difficult position to be in because you're representing a party that is not strong in your own state. And uh, that he survived politically as long as he did is amazing. Um, and um, um, South Dakota now has somebody else, and I think it's a great loss to the country. I've, I know people who work for Dashiell, and they speak of him privately as just an enormously admirable man. And uh, I, I think he did, you know, under very difficult circumstances, a, a pretty good job. And uh, uh, in another time, um, I believe, would have been a serious candidate for president of the United States. But it just wasn't in the cards for him this time. Listening to you. I must admit, I've been becoming a little bit depressed. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yet hope springs eternal in the human breast. <laughs> Where is there hope? Where do we look? Uh, I'm sorry if I depressed you. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's meant to be a hopeful account, actually. Um, <laughs> and when it's published, I, I hope it will be. Um, I think it's very hopeful. I mean, I, through this project, I've kind of personally just found myself more in touch with an America that um, resonates in a whole lot of ways with me. And so as I, you know, like go back and say read some of Lincoln's speeches or Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt and, and these other people, um, I feel it's very inspiring. And um, right now, uh, the political situation for people of my views is not very hopeful, but... I'm 
convinced that if uh, someone much more eloquent than I and someone in politics could take some of these ideas about American greatness and package them, uh, that this vision, the vision I'm identifying with Lincoln and so on, is so much more powerful and so much more attractive than the vision of the world of John Ashcroft or Jerry Fowell that, that you know, it would just drive the other one out of existence. Uh, we have such a wonderful richness in our culture, our political culture and our political thought, and it, it, that uh, um, perhaps if I were to fault uh, uh, the Democratic Party these days, it's, it's almost been running away from some of the best things in its own heritage. And uh, um, it's been possible to do that in the past. And I, I really fundamentally have to believe uh, that, um, um, that this particular set of ideas will win in any fair contest. And um, I do believe it will win. And I don't know when. Um, uh, I, I, like some other people in my line of work, I vary on my prediction of how long this period of Republican domination is going to last. Uh, a lot depends on what they do. But if they make some mistakes, and they have in the past, um, it could be just, you know, four, eight, 12 years from now that people will say, we're not being offered anything that makes us proud. We're not being offered anything that stimulates our sense of potential and creativity, and we have to find something else than this. And so I don't, I don't think it's going to be that long. Uh, I think uh, I'm a great optimist and hopeful about this country. I'm depressed about the election. That's all. <laughs> Uh, the uh, re the left has been accused of wanting big government and having government run our lives in many aspects, and yet the Rep and the Republicans have made that charge, and yet I'm puzzled because a lot of the policies that the Republicans have promoted seem to me to inflict the government into our bedrooms. Uh, uh, and into uh, all aspects of our life, civil liberties. Yeah. No, it's true. And um, it, uh, it's, it's hard to explain uh, uh, how people sort of see the world selectively sometimes, that they see some things as government, and that's bad, and yet rely on government so much. I mean, you know, it's, it's an almost an invarying law of American politics that all those people out there in the red states that vote uh, for Republicans so their taxes will be cut come from states that benefit enormously from all kinds of government programs that, you know, provide employment and so on. And uh, maybe someday, all I can say is that maybe someday government will actually be cut. And the f places that will really feel it will be Arizona and Oklahoma and so on. And they'll sort of wake up, what happened, you know? And at that point, it, you know, again, it comes up to leadership. Somebody's going to have to point out, well, that's actually what you voted for. Um, whether that'll sink in, I don't know. On that note, we need to uh, bring this to a close. Yeah. Let's thank Alan Wolf uh, for this wonderful series of questions. Thank you. Thank you.